Welcome to Into Africa. My name is Mvemba Pezo Dizolele. I'm a senior fellow and the director of the Africa program at the Center for Strategic and International Studies. This is a podcast where we talk everything Africa, politics, economics, security, and culture. Welcome. From December 13 to December 15, the United States hosted the second U.S.-Africa Leadership Summit here in Washington, D.C. The last summit was hosted in 2014 under the Obama presidency. It took eight years for the United States to come back to the table to meet African leaders and hammer out a plan moving forward. This summit was heralded with a lot of excitement as analysts who follow Africa thought that the U.S. had been lagging behind its competitors, to use a phrase that has become pretty common as we talk a lot about great power competition in Washington, D.C., in Western capitals. The summit, uh, of course, raised a lot of expectations. 49 African leaders and heads of delegation came to attend. In that sense, the summit was a success. We salute and commend the team that had worked on this at the White House and the National Security Council and the various agencies of the United States. But also we salute the Africans who came to join their American partners and try again to hammer an agenda to bridge the gap that existed for so long. To be sure, the United States has invested a lot in Africa. It's not always clear if there is an alignment between the investment of the United States and the needs and aspirations of the African people. And I think that's why summitry is important. The summit raised a bunch of questions. One, is this the new beginning? Or is this catching up to China? Is this a new substance in terms of the way the two sides engage? Or is this going to be business as usual? At this time, we can say that There were a lot of strong signals on the part of the United States that they do not want to do business as usual. Of course, in any situation like this, the devil tend to be in the details and the devil tend to be in the implementation. The United States, President Joe Biden appointed Johnny Carson, a retired U.S. ambassador, to be the lead coordinator for all the initiatives and projects that will come out of the summit. There is a lot to be discussed. It's quite early. We know we don't have most of the answers to the question that we're asking today, but we are joined by two seasoned Africa observers and analysts. First, Kehinde Togun, who's Managing Director for Public Engagement at Humanity United here in Washington, D.C., and Dr. Aloysius Ordu, who is Senior Fellow and Director of the Africa Growth Initiative at the Brookings Institution, also here in Washington, D.C. Gentlemen, welcome to Into Africa. Thank you for having us, Mbemba. Thank you. Welcome again. The summit was a rare event. It's only happened twice as far as the United States is concerned. It's happened many other times in other parts of the world. What are your first impressions now that the summit is closed, considering the expectation that we all had going into the event? First, as an Africa policy nerd, Mbemba, thank you for having us and thank you for this uh, work that you do at CSIS and for having smart people like Aloysius come to Into Africa. It's one of my favorite podcasts. So thank you for all the work that you do. In terms of the summit, I think that, like you said at the top of this, it was a success in terms of the 
pageantry, the platforming African leaders vis-a-vis their uh, counterparts at the cabinet level with President Biden, with uh, Vice President Kamala Harris. There was a lot of things that were done that I think made this a success. Early on, I had a conversation with a senior administration official who made the point that rhetoric, rhetorical shifts matter, right? And in terms of how we've always seen Africa in the United States and actually being able to do this matters, not just for the, the commitments that are made, but for the, the pageantry and the fact that they Africa took over D.C. for a whole week. And that was not lost on me because I think oftentimes many of us are skeptical. But I think that that point is an important one. Um, I think the second thing I would say is there were a number of commitments that were made, like the African Democratic and Political Transitions Initiative. So the ADAPT initiative that would give $75 million to counter democratic backsliding over the next three years. I think that was an, that's an important initiative, given all that we've talked about with coups on the continent and the increase of them. I think that there's often times that we can decry the the coups that are happening or decry the reasons that they're happening. But this was a proactive decision to do something about this. And I think that's an important piece. I think another thing with the civil society partnership on civilian security, I think oftentimes we talk about security as a government to government act interaction. When in reality, if security is working properly, it's for the citizens and they need to have oversight. So the fact that the U.S. chose to prioritize civilian security and citizen civil society involvement in that, I think is an important piece. I would love to see that go further and larger sums of money, but the $2 million is important. And the other one I would highlight is the labor department's commitment to women in, in the workforce. I think that that's an important initiative and that's an important signal. And the Empower initiative as a whole, that labor is part of with philanthropy and a number of other initiatives and folks like Solidarity Center. I think those are all very important things that happened and that were committed to that should be celebrated. There are a number of shortcomings as well that I think are important to talk about, particularly with civil society. I would first want to say that our friends at USAID and several agencies did an excellent job in trying to do the best that they could. But I think one thing that was clear to me in the summit is that civil society played second fiddle. There was a lot of privatization of the private sector, a lot of privatization of government officials as well. But it seemed like the desire to get civil society was not fully get there. And part of that looked like most of civil society was at USIP, which is a storied institution and a neutral place. But at the end of the day, it was this corner where everything, the action was happening somewhere and civil society was in its own space, right? If you think of visas and how much, how difficult it was for African civil society folks to get visas to come and participate actively, how late the invitations went to civil society folks, all those things limited interaction. And I think at the end of the last piece I would mention is the lack of focus on human rights, right? Like I think when we talk about civil society has to be at the table, but also the topics that we talk about matter. This administration, to its credit, said to the AU, who do you want to come here? But at the end of the day, what that resulted in was folks like Prime Minister Abi from Ethiopia being close in hand with the Secretary of State of the United States. So there was platforming of human rights abusers while also not platforming the civil society folks actively working to address human rights. And the last point I would make broadly on the civil society piece is that for the initiatives that were created at the summit or that were committed to at the summit to go well, we need civil society at the table to be prioritized and they need to feel, government officials need to feel like civil society will hold them accountable. So by not putting them on an equal footing with the government officials, with the private sector, I think that there's a danger in the commitments that need to be followed up on not fully materializing. I think, member, you're right that this has just begun. And so it's too early to appraise the what's the, what a success look like. But I think one of the things that could hamper success was the lack of fully prioritizing civil society. Democratic backsliding is a serious problem. 
But it's a problem, like you said, it's a problem because of a set of conditions that make them possible. It's also a problem, I think, in the way we have engaged the continent. We, by that, I mean the West, since we are in Western institutions here. So we, we, we need to be clear where we stand geographically, at least on this side of the equation, on these issues. But then we saw among some of the leaders we were invited, we had the Chadian president, for instance, Mahmoud Debi. You mentioned the issues of human rights. Prime Minister Abiy was invited. But then some of these other leaders were not in Guinea, in um, Guinea Conakry, that is, in Burkina Faso, and also Mali. Did we miss an opportunity to engage with those leaders? Because the summit is a summit of the community of nations and countries. Sure, they are leaders, but when leaders come to summit like this, they're representing their countries and people. Was there a missed opportunity there for the people, the issues that Burkina Faso and Mali and other countries are grappling with, as opposed to picking and choosing who comes and who doesn't come? Yeah, so, I mean, I think I would actually give the administration some credit here because they didn't make that choice entirely. It was the AU that said, these folks are not in the good graces of us. There are a few that are sort of, we don't have diplomatic relations and therefore you're not invited. Could everybody have been here? I think that's right. And that there's value in talking to people. But I actually think that bigger failing was by not having an even playing field, right? So you can't say to Burkina, don't come, but Abi, you're allowed to be present. Prime Minister Abi, you're about allowed to be here. So like, I think there was some incongruence in how that table was set. But no, I think the U.S. Ha- has every right to say you're not respecting the values that we hold uh, or upholding the values that we hold, and therefore we're not going to engage with you. I think you're right that there's something that's lost there, but Summitry is one aspect of diplomacy. There are other ways that the U.S. can and should be engaging Burkina Faso and engaging civil society in Burkina Faso, right, or engaging private sector. There's any number of ways that that engagement can happen. That's not just the summit. But to have said to folks, you will come here, you will have a state dinner in spite of all the things that you're doing, I think would have been problematic, right? And I think it was problematic that Prime Minister Abiy, for example, was here. So I think that there's both can coexist, I suppose, is what I would say. All right. So it was incongruent in some at some level and inconsistent in that. I think that's my point. Either don't invite anyone who has that type of record or invite everyone who has that type that's of fair. record. That, that's and you point. can make then a point why you're engaging everyone or why you're not engaging with everyone. Yeah. But it's it's this dichotomy that, that's problematic there. Also in terms of security and citizenship participation. At CSIS, we're really pushing for this. We believe that it's time for us to start looking at security as a public service. You know, security has been dealt with in the past as a government purview. It's government to government, especially foreign security assistance or military to military. When in reality, if we start looking at it as public service, the end users are the civilians. And if the end users are the civilians, they should have much more input and what need to go into our foreign assistance in the area of security. So it's encouraging that this made it to the table, and we hope that will be expanded as well. Foreign security assistance should not be targeting civilians only after the village had been inadvertently bombed. You know, they should be determining what security looks like for them in Mali, which may be different from what security looks like in the Niger Delta or in Chad and so on. This one-size-fits-all model that dates, I don't know, from 1945 is just not doing it. Also, the nature of conflicts in Africa are different. Conflict in Africa, on the larger part, is really about the failure of the social contract. And the failure of social contract is the relationship between civilians 
and the government, not the army. I think in terms of just also having civil society or citizens be seen as equal of you're here to serve us, right? You have guns and that gun gives you power. But what really the center of your power and the purpose of your being here is protecting me and my family and helping to make sure that I can feed my family. I think that that... And so that begins to shift all these things of we can, yes, there can be more guns, there can be more weapons, but that's not the goal of security, right? So like, I think that until we continue to like fully make that shift and prioritize human rights, prioritize citizen involvement in security, we're not going to be doing enough. We, the West, will not be doing enough for our African counterparts. And also change the metrics, the measurement metrics that yep. we use, right? Absolutely. It's not about how many people we killed, how many bombs we dropped, you know, because how do you measure peace? You measure peace through different type of indicators, not the same as the kinetic side of the equation does. The last uh, point that I want you to to flesh out a little more is this labor department. You know, labor department is not one of the ministries that people look up to when it comes to foreign engagement. So can you talk a little bit about where do you see this going? At Humanity United, a lot of the work that we do, a core part of the work we do is around forced labor and trying to make sure that folks who are most marginalized are at the table and that they actually are drivers of the work that, that they want to do and that they can have human dignity as part of the work that they do. There's several layers to that. The Labor Department's work and the, so the Empower Initiative is really, I, I don't want to misquote this, uh, but it's really centered around how do you make sure that folks can organize and have the ability to actually improve their own lives. So I think one of the reasons this initiative was important is that it's saying to Liberia and Nigeria, I think, were the two countries that were selected. Here are some funds. We want to make sure that you're able to expand the work that you're doing. We want to make sure that you have opportunities, but also we want to make sure that you can organize. And I think the ability of individuals to organize themselves and to be part of a larger community, right, and to have values, their dignity of work respected is an important one. So there's definitely the aspect of do people have jobs and can we increase the ability of people to make a living. But I think equally important to that is, can people have respectable, meaningful jobs that can allow them to prosper and feel full human beings in that process? And I think that that's part of what's important here. So there were a lot of side events. There were the formal events to which some of us got accredited. But then there were a lot of side meetings, you know, side events. And I think a lot of civil society events took place on the sidelines, at the margin. How would you have conceived it differently? so that we can get more of the input from civil society live in the summit. So we and several of our partners, particularly on the human rights front, held a side event where we platformed human rights defenders and invited U.S. government officials as well. I would have loved to see that kind of event as part of this conversation, right? So like I think there was the co-branding is one way to do it, where like there's multiple things that are happening. The U.S. government isn't just invited, but it's actually at the table as well as African governments, right? I think the other way that I would have loved to see this done was rather than siloing the different events, right? And I acknowledge here, like there's a no winning thing for the administration because you have to choose a pattern. Yeah. No matter what you choose, there will be criticisms. Having said that, I, I do have those criticisms of Diaspora Day, Civil Society Day. There's no winning in some sense, right? In terms of whatever the administration does, there will be criticisms and there will be critiques, myself included. Having said that, some of the criticisms were around having the siloing that occurred. So civil society was in its own bubble. Youth and diaspora happened by itself. But how powerful would it have been if you had civil society actively engaging with African government officials and U.S. government officials in all the settings. In the private sector day, for example, could you have had civil society actively as participants rather than like a few were invited, but most were not, right? So how do you have those interactions be engaging? And then the other pieces, I, I think for many of the other events, there was a lot of talking at people. So the health summit, for example, or the health part of the summit was African leaders talking to people rather 
rather than like uh, actually being able to ask questions. Same with the peace and security event that, uh, that was held. It was a lot of like, I, leader, will give you my talking points. How much more engaging could that have been if you had a back and forth where African society leaders were there to talk to their counterparts, to their government officials and have that back and forth. I think that could have been a richer conversation and was a missed opportunity. And on the one hand, which then makes you wonder, what are we trying to protect? Is it that we don't feel like we don't want to embarrass African leaders or we don't want to embarrass ourselves, all right? So that's like the worst case scenario. The best case scenario is just like there's not enough time, but what a, that was a missed opportunity given that everybody was here or enough folks were here. And then the last piece I would say that was done well for the society part was this idea that you could have folks watch across the globe, right? Because like Africa is on the continent and people, all, all the folks are here. So I think the administration did a decent job of trying to get engagement from the continent, uh, at least what people to watch on the continent, I think what they could have done better was actually getting those voices from the continent directly uh, to be in the conversation. So I think that's sort of the other uh, missed opportunity that I saw. That definitely was the case for the Peace, Security and Governance Forum, which I attended. So it ended up being a conversation between the presidents of Niger, Somalia and Mozambique with secretaries Anthony Blinken, Lloyd Austin, and Administrator Samantha Power. And then there were a lot of things that were never addressed just yeah. because, you know, people were just not part of that discussion. We were in the room, but we we're just there to listen. Exactly. It's like you know? you're, you listen to a moderated conversation with two leaders. Exactly. Fascinating, but the leaders, I have yeah. thoughts. Like, you know, exactly. going back to that point about if security is about the people, then the people should be... I should have a space at that at table. table. Exactly. We can have those two groups plus the people's group, which is civil society or some other thing. Yeah, exactly. A lot was done. A lot could have been done. We'll see what happens with what was decided in that space. Aloysius, I spoke with a few government officials, Africans that is, to get their sense. They were not very sure about what the summit was all about. They came with a lot of skepticism, wondering what the U.S. is trying to do here. On one level, they felt like the U.S. did not quite articulate what were they trying to get from this summit. But a lot of them made it clear that they were very satisfied with day two. And day two was commerce, trade, business, that's the, uh, the day that uh, Kakendo is referring to. They were pretty satisfied uh, with that because apparently there was much more substance. There were MOUs, there were concrete initiatives that were announced. You work in this space, Africa Growth Initiative. What's your read of that side of the summit? Remember, thank you. Thank you very much for, for having us on this conversation. The summit took place about a month ago. We've all had a chance in terms of to reflect, to look back and see what actually happened and reflect on it. I think three things are important. One is um, what exactly were the objectives of the summit? That's important to clarify. The second is that what were the outcomes? As you said, by day two, things had bound up. What were the outcomes? And then... The third, I would like to talk about missed opportunities. Yeah. It's you know, basically consistent with uh, Kehinde's earlier remarks as well. So in terms of objectives, you know, if you think about it from the perspective of the United States government, this was a chance for the U.S. to leverage, if you like, a whole of government approach 
And that's what we saw on display. And I think Kahindel alluded to that, you know, Congress, administration, private sector, civil society, you name it, the business community, and of course, uh, the diaspora. So a whole of government approach. And I think we saw that on display. Are there elements that could have been better, you know, in terms of aligned? But the point was that was one of the objectives. And we saw that. I think there was also a recognition that Africa is a key geopolitical player, which you alluded to in your introduction. You know, because with 1.3 billion people on the continent and expected to basically rise to 2.6 billion by 2050, according to the United Nations, it's clear that you can no longer take Africa and Africans for granted. So that was also important, that recognition. There was also the sense that collaboration with Africa is absolutely critical to tackling many of the global challenges we currently face. Already, tomorrow's workforce in the population, the youthful population you mentioned, you know, you can't take that for granted. Congo DRC, the second largest lung of the world, the Congo basin of the planet is key to our survival in terms of climate change. Minerals, you know, rare earth, you know, there are just tons of it on our continent. And now that gas has become an important part of the energy transition to greener energy, you have African countries, Nigeria, Algeria, many, many, many others, Mozambique with huge reserves of gas. So these are all very, very important. And also the sense that the summit was a chance for the U.S. administration, the Biden-Harris administration to change tone, you know, to change tone. Because if you remember, the previous administration dismissed the continent, right, and with derogatory terms. So this was a chance for the Biden-Harris administration to basically reaffirm their commitment to Africa. And so I think that with those objectives in mind, you can reflect in the interest of uh, hindsight and say, yeah, most of those objectives, those objectives were largely met. Then in terms of outcomes, I think that so many things happened and Kahinda alluded to some of them. The idea that $55 billion was committed over three years. Many times you hear the 55, you read about it, but people forget those few words over three years. So it's really, you know, in a short order, it's a lot of money. And what is that money for? It's intended basically to support the African 2063 agenda, which is really mostly infrastructure. In addition to that, $350 million was committed for digital infrastructure specifically which is, again, a large sum of money. $10 million was set aside for health electrification, right? electrification of health systems and health services across the continent. $2.5 billion set aside for humanitarian assistance, particularly food, etc. And then $165 million also set aside to support elections. And as you know, there are big, big ticket elections happening on the continent this year, including Nigeria, for example, and a number of others. So these are all... DRC. And the, I forgot, and of DRC course, well. the big countries, DRC. And so these are all, when you look back, these are, these are pretty impressive. Now, what's in retrospect, again, I thought were missed opportunities. One is that when we hear... 55 billion. If you can imagine that 5 billion of the 55 
had been set aside specifically as grant funding for the United States government to provide grant funding to African institutions, right? Like the Program for Infrastructure Development in Africa, PIDA, which is an AU, they have a priority list of infrastructure projects, catalytic projects. Think of President Krumah when he basically talked about an Africa. He envisaged an Africa where you could go from Cape Town to Cairo, you know, basically in the same day and come to West Africa, et cetera. Et cetera. Those sort of catalytic cross-border infrastructure. If they set aside five billion to de-risk these projects, make them bankable. Right, environmental and social, uh, fiduciary, you know, all the preparations you need to have these projects ready for prime time. Then you crowd in private sector entities and sovereign wealth funds, et cetera, et cetera, to actually do the financing. So I thought that was a missed opportunity because the five billion could have de-risked the equivalent of one trillion dollars worth of infrastructure across Africa. And at a time when we have the African continental free trade area, and basically the biggest impetus to an integrated Africa is cross-border infrastructure. So I thought that was a big missed opportunity. The second missed opportunity, in my view, is on the African side. Ever so often, they go to China. They went to Sochi in Russia. Anytime one of these countries called all of them troops and they came to the U.S., they came under Obama 2014 and now. Do they ever sit down before coming to agree on one or two things that they will be asking for? Or do they just show up as we heard through the grapevine in day one? It's like, oh, why are we, you know, you know, those sort of things. Unless you're ready yourself, you're prepared. And the way you prepare is to be very clear that this is, as the American would say, this is our ask. And then of all the voices there is consistent. They're asking for the same thing. Imagine how powerful that would have been in terms of ultimate outcomes. So overall, I think it was a a very, very, very good uh, summit. And of course, the subsequent visits, many cabinet secretaries had visited the continent before the summit. And President Biden has promised to go this year, and uh, the Treasury Secretary Janet Yellen is leaving next week to Africa. So I think overall, the momentum and the change of tone and all these financial commitments, and as you say, holding their feet to the fire in terms of appointing uh, Ambassador Carson to provide oversight, and more importantly as well, to make sure that these monies are new money. It's not just a reallocation from previous commitments. We need to track that too. So overall, I thought it was a very, very successful summit. So $15 billion in two-way trade was also announced. What did you gather about that just briefly? What does that mean? I mean, typically a trade is two-way unless it's a triangular trade. So I struggle a little bit with that language when they say two-way trade. And just briefly, if you had more insight onto that. Here... They're alluding to AGOA, right? Because the U, the instrumentalities, the relationship between the continent and the U.S. when it comes to trade is really under the auspices of AGOA, right? They enables Africans to export duty-free about 6,000 commodities into the United States duty-free. So that's the context of the two-way trade, right? U.S. 
trade with Africa in terms of import, as you can see, in recent years, dramatically dropped. That's a reason for that, because of the U.S. own self-sufficiency in petroleum products and energy products. I mean, the U.S. used to import billions of petroleum from Nigeria. It no longer does so because of self-sufficiency at home, right? So what are the other things the U.S. would buy from Africa, you know, and that's really... They, you know, those come under the rubric of AGOA, which was a 10-year agreement, which, as you know, is expiring in 2025. And so the key thing now, which is very important because AGOA is very important to the continent and to the United States for that matter, right? If you go to Congress or anywhere in this town and you want to get a united view of Republicans and Democrats. There are not many things I agree on these days, but you can be sure that there are two things I agree on uh, relating to Africa. One is that both parties support AGOA. And the second is that if you mention China and Africa in the same sentence, you know, they both pounce on you, right? So, <laughs> anyway, so I think that um, the trade relationship is important, yeah. We're coming to a close uh, our session here. This has been rich. We are just reflecting on this, looking forward to what will happen. We should uh, revisit this topic in about six months. I think by then the administration will have plenty of time to start showing the fruit, at least, of what they're trying to do. But there's always a gap, as we know. This here on this program, we always talk about minding the gap between the reality and the perception. Starting with you, Aloysius, where is the gap? And if you had the magic wand, how would you close that gap? I think the, no pun intended, the evident gap is really the resource need. And it's already there, 55 billion. You know, to mine the gap, I'm talking about to de-risk catalytic infra cross-border infrastructure projects. All you need to, the same 55 billion, just move even three. You move three billion aside. The key is that it be grant funded, right, to PIDA, right, so that the, the Program for Infrastructure Development in Africa can basically make the existing projects. All the heads of states who attended the summit had already in the AU meeting approved these projects that cut across the continent. So for me, that's the gap to mind. Very good. Kende, same question to you. Yes. Uh, and I hate to sound like a one hit wonder here, but I do think the gap is civil society that has to hold folks accountable for the 15 billion or the 55 billion writ large. Right. I think until we prioritize them and make sure that they are at the table in equal footing, there's a lot that's going to be either wasted or misaligned or misopportuned. So I think that's one piece. I think the second one I would say really quickly is so there was a summit for democracy and then there was African Leaders Summit. There's another summit for democracy happening. And it's not clear to me that the administration has a through line through all these things, right? So we continue to summit, we continue to have deliverables. Are they interrelated? And if they're not, there's a missed opportunity there. So like I think to our friends who are listening, March is, is going to be here very soon. How are we making sure that the commitments from the uh, African Leaders Summit are being amplified and to elevated uh, at the uh, Summit for Democracy, particularly since Zambia is one of the co-hosts of the Summit for Democracy? Sure. In fact, if I may add to what Brother mm -hmm. Kahinda just said, this is also part of the accountability, right? Because when the president, President Biden, goes to Africa, 
I think heads of states, heads of states, fine. But I think it's important, as he rightly mentioned, that African civil society, and it's not just, I'm including here municipal government, I'm including city administrations, I'm including local government officials. You need them to be part of this agenda because that's how we can then hold our governments accountable. It's very, very important. And then the final point is that in the United States, I think there are just so many. The last time I checked, there were about 12 or so institutions of the U.S. administration that are Africa facing. So as the president of DRC, you come to this country, you know, this town, you're going to knock on 15 doors on Africa. It doesn't make sense. A coordinated, a consolidated, a coherent approach will be important. When I used to have the opportunity to travel to China to discuss Africa, you knock on two doors and that's it. So on the Africa side, we need to do our work. And then on this side, they need to be much more cohesive and one focal point. And that would be important to minimize transaction costs for the Africans. Kainde, is this supposed to be continuous now? We're going to have more summits or we have a sense of that yet? I do not have a sense of that. Summiting is hard. So I can't imagine they want to do this again uh, in a year. But uh, but I do think the eight-year gap was a long one. So my hope is that there is, to the extent that this is a thing that our administration friends find valuable, I think if we can make it more useful, I would hope that they continue. But I don't think there's been an announcement of... Uh, okay. They can do it uh, every three years, every five years. But something that is doesn't take two presidential terms. More regular, exactly, and <laughs> irrespective of who is in power. Right? Exactly, that becomes part of the uh, policy, actually, the way that other countries do it. Gentlemen, on this note, I would like to thank you for joining us on Into Africa today. Kehinde Togun, Managing Director for Public Engagement at Humanity United. Dr. Aloysius Ordu, Senior Fellow and Director of the Africa Growth Initiative at the Brookings Institution. Thank you very much. Thank you for listening. We want to have more conversations about Africa. Tell your friends. Subscribe to our podcast at Apple Podcasts. You can also read our analysis and report at csis.org slash Africa. So long. So long.